Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, or good night. However and whenever it is, you may be listening. Thank you for stopping into another fantabulous episode of The Take It Easy Podcast live on the Believe Podcast Network, except it isn't live because it's a podcast. Welcome in, everybody. It is November 4th, 2021, according to my count. Thank you again for all of the support that y'all have continued to show this podcast Leave a five-star review if you are listening on Apple. It uh, doesn't have to be a nice review, just has to be a five-star review. Anyways, we've got a fun show today. Uh, we are going to revisit the Henry Ruggs story, which I guess is less fun than the fun show I said before. And even though we said that we would visit this story in the doldrums of the offseason and not come back to it, we will talk about Odell Beckham Jr., because something interesting kind of happened around the Odell Beckham situation yesterday, and it has nothing to do with his dad. But first, let's talk Aaron Rodgers real quick here on the podcast, because something interesting happened around Aaron Rodgers, where Aaron Rodgers is now going to be out for the thrilling Sunday night football game, where, you know, if you're a Chiefs fan or um, a homie like myself, you're kind of like, wiping your brow a little bit because it looks like at least the Kansas City Chiefs are going to have an easy win to help supplement this crazy schedule they've had. But even still, uh, Aaron Rodgers is out because of COVID protocol, which on the surface is not that huge of news. It's obviously Aaron Rodgers missing a game, which is huge news in and of itself. But also Dak Prescott missed a game last week. Baker Mayfield's going through injuries. Like some of this stuff is going to happen throughout the course of a season. Whether this became a unique story is finding out that Aaron Rodgers is unvaccinated. Um, He's not the only quarterback to be unvaccinated, but he's just the one we didn't know about. We're pretty sure Carson Wentz is unvaccinated. Pretty sure Josh Allen is not vaccinated. Kirk Cousins definitely not vaccinated, but Kirk Cousins isn't necessarily the I don't I don't or I disregard everything about being the COVID protocol and being a a COVID denier type. It seems like Kirk Cousins is still keeping himself safe even through all of this. And yet still, the Aaron Rodgers news comes as pretty shocking because he had apparently said that he was immunized and not vaccinated, which I'm sure everyone's seen the clip already. If you haven't, it's everywhere on the internet right now. Just Google Aaron Rodgers vaccination interview. You'll find it. Uh, Aaron Rodgers ends up going through that and According to the, I believe, Chris Mortensen report that Aaron Rodgers applied for a exemption because he got some other treatment related to the COVID-19 vaccine. And when I first heard that, my instinct was thinking about Aaron Rodgers in the form of like, he's really into Eastern medicine and meditation and things like that. And I thought maybe that's something that Aaron actually believes in, in terms of being uh, a medicine and supplementing COVID-19 and not taking immunizations or drugs or pills and focusing on something like that to keep the body healthy. I don't know if that's me stereotyping a little bit, but Aaron Rodgers has that in his past where it wouldn't be something as surprising as Aaron Rodgers lying about being vaccinated, coming down with COVID 
and then all of a sudden having a di- having everyone scowled him for being uh, irresponsible in this situation, which I think is irresponsible to a T, and we'll come back around to this conversation in a bit, but also just the leadership side is interesting, but we'll come back around to that later. Uh, let's start off with that around the the potential immunization, or maybe the the more cynical version is that it's it's a BS way around Aaron Rodgers lied about his vaccination status, which is dangerous on a larger level, but at the same time, I'm not going to like clutch my pearls and say, oh my goodness, Aaron Rodgers misled the public about his vaccination status as if the one case of Aaron Rodgers is going to define the COVID-19 issue as a whole. Because when you think of people who are anti-vaxxing, you don't think of something similar to what happened to Aaron Rodgers. You think of people who, when suggesting, okay, if you're not going to get this vaccine, will you go through COVID testing? Will you continue to wear a mask? And will you limit your exposure in outdoor gatherings? And most people tend to go to no on this. Uh, I still get vaccinated because it's, I'm sorry, I've gotten vaccinated and I still get COVID tested every other week because that's what my school requires. And so I'm happy to go through that procedure once a week or Twice every three weeks, I think, is pretty much what it is. Sometimes you can skip a week if you get it on Friday because you have 14 days to get a COVID test. But it, it's phrasing the vaccine in a way such that getting the COVID vaccine is opting out of mandatory testing of sorts. You still need to have testing just so that we know whether you have COVID or not because just because you're vaccinated doesn't mean you can't get COVID. So going through that procedure is reasonable enough. And Aaron Rodgers wanted, I guess, to have his cake and eat it. But also, we don't have a ton of the information, although we can connect some dots on this because of the fact that Aaron Rodgers, we assumed, was vaccinated and he was not. I think it makes the situation interesting because I think this is so different than the conversation that we've had about vaccinations to this point. And Aaron Rodgers is compromising the football locker room side of it that I think is really overrated in terms of how could you be irresponsible in this way? Because honestly, Aaron Rodgers is in a profession where there's mandatory COVID testing and contact tracing and 95% of the people that he encounters in his profession are also going to be vaccinated. So Aaron Rodgers is in an industry where if you're going to be anti-vax, which at this point we just accept as a reality in America because you're going to have 30% of people who remain unvaccinated, then if you're going to be non-vaccinated, being around the National Football League is probably the one of the best places to be in America in terms of a profession. And so Aaron Rodgers, from a locker room standpoint, is probably going to make some people disappointed in him. I'm not even going to say angry on this because the, the gauntlet of human emotions is complex. It's not just whether you're happy or sad or angry. There, you know, There's somewhere in between where disappointment kind of plays in. And maybe this is a rallying cry around Jordan Rodgers and all that cliche crap that we talk about with sports. But even still, like I think the overwhelming emotion is going to be disappointed because most of the emotions I felt is disappointment. Like, Oh, we didn't think it was you too, which 
it, to bring the political conversation into this, like it seems like from everything I've heard around Aaron Rodgers, whether that be interviews with PMS or with the Lebetard show or clips that go viral with him talking about issues like this or him having the police brutality conversation and articulating things that sounded like an ally, but then also on other things not necessarily going all the way. It seems like Aaron Rodgers is libertarian. Like, it's interesting to, like, libertarian is something people kind of throw out as, like, a third political party, but it seems like Aaron Rodgers is a little bit libertarian in this way, where he is about non-intervention, but also promoting the idea of people being uh, accountable for one another, but also having small government and not a lot of people reigning in on him and the don't tread on me sympathy, I guess. Um, it seems like Aaron Rodgers leans libertarian, which I think part of that might be being around the football locker room for so long. JJ Reddick talks about this a lot. Um, and I thought it was interesting because I relate to it on a different level. But J.J. Reddick talked about like he was growing up in Virginia as a white middle class kid and if it weren't for him hanging around AAU tournaments and it weren't for him having black teammates everywhere that he went in a predominantly black sport, J.J. probably would have had a totally different upbringing and I feel very similarly to that idea. It's why things. It's why when John Gruden has the one email with DeMora Smith where he says something that could or could, or it is a racial trope, but it may not have had those intentions because he says that about people who lie. And then in that first moment, we are willing to give the white man the benefit of the doubt in that situation, because that seems to be a thing we do in society is when in doubt, we tend to give people in general the benefit of the doubt, maybe black people less so than white people or women less so than men unfortunately, but we still generally tend to give people the benefit of the doubt. We like to believe in the inherent good of everyone else. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell talks about this because if we don't have that inherent good, going back all the way to like caveman days, we need someone to point out if there's danger or not, and therefore we need to assume that people tell us if danger is going to be there, and if they don't say anything, that there's not danger, and this idea that we will have an inherent belief in everyone else because otherwise we would all be paranoid and society would dysfunction like America or humankind would be a little bit more dysfunctional and so evolutionarily it's better to have that faith in other people even if it's going to betray us every now and then the point coming all the way back forward is Aaron Rodgers spends a lot of time around a league that is predominantly black and you can create circles around yourself when you have wealth, privilege, and are as famous as Aaron Rodgers is. It happened with John Gruden, where I presume Gruden, outside of the facility, was very much surrounding himself with people who had similar views to him growing up in central Ohio and were predominantly white men in positions of power in a boys club situation because that seems to be the upbringing that John Gruden came through from being a, a child prodigy in that situation and I think Aaron Rodgers in a way can create that net around him but it doesn't seem like Aaron does that 
it seems like Aaron has real connections to some of his teammates, the people who he spends a lot of time around and gets to know. There's tons of stories about Aaron Rodgers outside of this and him and uh, Bakhtiari and some of those old backup quarterback rooms would go to parties on college campuses. But again, these are just like small things that we know about Aaron Rodgers. We don't know Aaron Rodgers, the person, but it seems like from Aaron Rodgers' personal background and little bits and pieces we pieced together with the information I have, I'm presumed to think Aaron Rodgers has grown up in an environment where he is a little bit more tolerable of other ideas. And maybe this is one of the things where Aaron Rodgers is open to ideas of Eastern medicine and going to pray in Buddhist temples halfway around the world and climbing Machu Picchu and things that like rich white people do where maybe I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt of being you know, open to new ideas and new cultures and spirituality and things like that. And that inherently being spiritual is correlated to being a good person. Those things are often hand in hand, but they don't always line up. They're not mutually exclusive things. Just because you are a spiritual person does not mean you are a tolerant person. And so, Where this comes back to the anti-vax conversation with Aaron Rodgers, which this has kind of just delved into what do we actually know about Aaron Rodgers, because a lot of us probably feel deceived if you care about Aaron Rodgers in this way. What this conversation comes back to is Aaron Rodgers as a person we don't know a ton about, and this makes us feel a little bit deceived, and thus Aaron Rodgers is going to live whatever life he is, and we're going to understand a portion of it, but we really don't know enough about that. And so when it comes up that Aaron Rodgers is not vaccinated, and we start to piece together, we we start assuming things about Aaron Rodgers based on that one idea that Aaron Rodgers is not vaccinated. And I guess because this situation seems so different than the typical anti-vax conversation, which the stereotype we have around being anti-vaxxed is loud and defiant and people who don't want you to impair their freedoms or their freedom of choice and are going to be loud and obnoxious about it but that's not a the that's not a representation of the anti-vax community just as the representation of people who are progressive or people who are communist or people who are uh, libertarian even in the case of Aaron Rodgers or people who are pro black lives matter or white supremacists or whatever it might be like these stereotypes exist to help us get a picture because we don't want to do digger deeping and di- digging deeper not deeper digging digging deeper and so we get these stereotypical pictures that we think helps us understand all of it but also recognize that there's blind spots around this which is why i said you know a little bit ago let's not pretend like we know exactly who aaron Rodgers is at all which brings us back into the conversation we've been having across the past few months about aaron Rodgers and the green bay packers and in order to do this Anytime we have the chance, we created this last dance music for this exact moment where we can talk about Aaron Rodgers in relation to the Green Bay Packers last dance season where they posted the Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen thing on Instagram and Robert Tanyan posted Dennis Rodman on there and like this was the rallying cry of the last dance for the Packers and we did the last dance for the Saints last year and this year it's the last dance for the Packers and all of this is context to play this last dance theme song.
Rodgers is so disgruntled with Green Bay Packers that he has told some within the organization that he does not want to return to the team. And so we have a standoff here that nobody knows exactly where it's going. He is not making this about money. He wants out of there, and he's telling you there is no amount of money. We want him back in the worst way. I know he knows that, and... Um... You know, we'll continue to work at it. The situation between the Green Bay Packers and Devontae Adams is not good. As far as this weekend, as far as training camp, we will see. There's been one message consistently coming out of Aaron Rodgers' camp, and, and that's, I don't want to be here. So what's interesting about the Aaron Rodgers situation with the Packers is that the disappointment probably comes from the lack of leadership in this situation. And I'm willing to, I guess, maybe give a benefit of the doubt on Aaron Rodgers when he, when there's reports that he applied for a separate type of vaccine that's not scientifically safe. I'm willing to suspend the belief on that, that this was like maliciously lying around the situation. But the cynic in me also acknowledges there's a real situation where uh, Aaron Rodgers is just being a Aaron Rodgers is deceiving people about his vaccination status in order to not get the vaccine and not go through the COVID-19 protocols. And so the Green Bay Packer, I mean, maybe there's a fake vax card involved too, if you really want to dig deep into the conspiracies. But if it's the case where Aaron Rodgers wanted to have his cake and eat it, regardless of how he feels about the Packers organization, or regardless of how he feels about Matt LaFleur, or respect for the Packers as a team, this was more so an NFL protocol that Rodgers was going against based on whatever his beliefs may be around the vaccine, which again, we don't know. We're trying to piece together Aaron Rodgers' beliefs as a whole, which is really difficult to do. But when we feel lied to, all of a sudden we start to piece together, well, where did things go wrong? What do we know? And should we start questioning that as well? I think that's a natural reaction to being lied to because inherently in sports, fans have a trust for the people who are stars in that way because we don't see them caught in lies that often, especially a high-profile person like Aaron Rodgers, who we've been watching for like a decade and a half now. And so bringing this back to Aaron Rodgers wanting to have his cake and eating it and deceiving us, that's just a breach in leadership at its... If you strip away all the details, all the nuance, all the complexities around vaccines and anything of those sorts, this is a breach of leadership on Aaron Rodgers' part. Not the not getting the vaccine leadership, which is a separate conversation because Kyrie Irving is technically a leader, even if we don't agree with the cause that he's leading behind. But even still, it's a breach in leadership on Aaron Rodgers' part because of the deception and Aaron Rodgers does not have to be a leader we kind of look to Aaron Rodgers as a leader because of whatever captain titles we believe in football or the fact that he's Aaron bleeping Rodgers and everywhere every room that he walks in even in football circles people will turn their heads even in in famous roles I was hearing uh, the Levitard show talk about Um, the uh, golf tournament in Tahoe with famous people all across the board, whether it's actors or movie stars or singers uh, or other athletes from other sports. And the two people who commanded the room, Aaron Rodgers and Justin Timberlake, 
command the room where people are famous people are actively seeking out Aaron Rodgers. So if Aaron Rodgers is that in a room of famous people, imagine walking into the football locker room of the Green Bay Packers where he is the franchise cornerstone and maybe the greatest Packer ever in a long line of great Packers. He's probably the greatest Packer ever because he's probably up until like a few years ago, the greatest quarterback to ever pick up a football. And so the leadership is somewhat expected there. And Aaron Rodgers doesn't have to be a leader in this situation. He should be one. And at this point probably connotes leadership because of the position that he plays. But this is a breach in leadership on Aaron Rodgers' part for the deception. Maybe people in the locker room knew, but to us as the public, it seems like a lot of people were probably finding out about this at once. And if that's the other case, then we can apply nuance to the situation because if everyone in the locker room knew, first of all, I'd be like, how is everyone like just totally cool with it? Is there a, a power dynamic here where people don't feel comfortable telling Aaron Rodgers that this is not okay? Is that Aaron Rodgers being this daunting figure? Does it have something to do with Rodgers um, not really being there, like mentally, like having one foot or one and a half feet out the door because he's already thinking about his next move, even though they have a good team and they t they talk publicly about how they're committed to this year and next week and all that crap that they give us about how we're always committed all the way through when that's not really human nature in its core we're always planning moves ahead because thinking in the short term and thinking in the long term are also not mutually exclusive we're always doing that or at least we should i feel always be looking for where our destination is because if there is no destination then by nature you're kind of lost even if that destination is not exactly pinned down if you don't have any destination then all of a sudden you are lost you're moving around and you're kind of just wandering and don't really know where it is that you want to end up. And so all of this to say Aaron Rodgers might be on, on his way out the door and maybe he doesn't care about being a leader anymore, which I would argue in and of itself is a breach of leadership. But Aaron Rodgers also w didn't want to continue the professional relationship with the Green Bay Packers. And whether or not he quote unquote owes it to the players in that locker room. I don't even know if that's a true thing because Aaron Rodgers was kind of forced into this situation. And if Aaron Rodgers still really wants to leave Green Bay, really wants to leave Green Bay, then part of that is going to be making it ugly. And it seems like they've come to some level of a compromise and maybe winning will cure all and, and Rodgers will finish his career with the Packers. Yet, and maybe a contract would do it. Like maybe the Packers willing to give a contract extension would do it. But also, there's the Jordan Love factor that complicates all of this, and whether the Packers regret getting Jordan Love in the first place. And we're finally going to get to see him start a game for the first time after two years. And all of that adds complex layers to this, and we don't know enough about Aaron Rodgers. But if Rodgers has a foot out the door, does he owe it? to the Packers to be a leader in that locker room? Does he owe it to himself? Does he owe it to those people in there who this might be their one chance? You could argue both sides of that because that leadership level and being all the way in would help the Packers get better. But does Aaron Rodgers feel committed to the Packers? Does Aaron Rodgers want the Packers to be better or be more unified front? Or is Aaron Rodgers looking at this like, You've checkmated me into this situation, 
and I'm not happy about it, but I'm going to go about it because this team has a good chance to win a championship, and this can ultimately benefit Aaron Rodgers. And from this point forward, I'm going to look out for Aaron Rodgers. And if that's the case, that is also a connotation to the breach in leadership around this. And I don't know exactly what's going on in the Packers locker room. There hasn't really been great reporting done around this. It's still unbelievably fascinating that the Green Bay Packers find themselves in this same situation that Tom Brady went through two years ago, that the Saints went through last year, that people who, I mean, we call it the last dance for a reason, where you know the window is closing, you know everything is dimming down, and do you have a responsibility to be a leader? I was uh, continuing the audiobook from Seth Wickersham about the Brady-Belichick years, and one of the quotes that Brady had at the very end was, I, what am I doing here? There was one route where a, a wide receiver back in 2019, that last year with the Patriots, would mess up a route, and Brady, who's like the coach on the field, just didn't have the motivation to correct it, which essentially, if you know the psychology around this and Randy Pausch last lecture idea, which is if a coach is riding you and being corrective and being sometimes mean, it means they still care about your success and well-being. If someone who cares about you is going to talk to you about it or try to be open and, and give conversation and bestow whatever they can to try and help you, and maybe that involves a conversation back and forth between two people because sometimes that can be patronizing, but also coaches can be patronizing. This is a, a thing that exists around being a leader. Leaders can sometimes be patronizing, even in conversations to people who follow, and when You've given up on a certain point, which we'll talk about again with the Odell Beckham situation coming up next. When you get to that point is when you don't you don't care anymore. You've lost the motivation. You don't care whether the person succeeds or fails because you've given up at a certain point. And that's totally fine. I think quitting is a totally underrated thing. It's okay to quit something if you don't love it anymore. And hopefully we all love the things that we're doing and pat and are passionate about this or whatever it is that we're doing. I know I'm passionate about this. I get, you know, oxytocin boosts from my friends from being over here in Davis and, and doing work around that and being a leader for, I mean, even people who I'm friends with, I like to think that I'm a leader and gain leadership from people around myself. There, sometimes I lead, sometimes I follow. It's different contexts, apply different reasonings, but all of that to say, it's okay to quit something. Aaron Rodgers, it appears, was over the situation with the Packers. And Aaron Rodgers now is going to come up and say, is it Aaron Rodgers' responsibility to be a leader if Aaron Rodgers is malcontent with that situation? Can you force yourself to be a leader if your heart is not in it? And not leader by title, leader by how you lead and sacrificing for others and being someone that is looked up to works for the greater good and leadership is the idea where you will sacrifice for the person to the left and to the right of you ultimately because they would do the same for you it is selfless to be a leader and someone who can be looked up to and is it aaron Rodgers' responsibility to be a leader at its purest context by not by title but by how Aaron Rodgers acts and behaves from this point going forward. 
He's all, we've already seen the breach in leadership. It's why we spent like 15 minutes trying to figure out who is Aaron Rodgers, because we all feel deceived by Aaron Rodgers. Maybe people in the organization and locker room feel deceived as well, but they're around Aaron Rodgers all the time. Those are the people who are important because they likely look to Aaron Rodgers for leadership. And I don't have the answer to this, but if Aaron Rodgers' heart is not in it, is it his responsibility to be a leader? If Aaron Rodgers is in a place where Aaron Rodgers is going to look out for Aaron Rodgers and his best intentions, and whether Aaron Rodgers sacrificed in coming back to Green Bay or compromised or whatever the situation might have been, I don't know whether that is something that would connotate Aaron Rodgers coming back to being a leader. I don't know if Aaron Rodgers was all the way a leader. It's He seemed like a leader. He seemed like someone who has great connections with people in the locker room and has learned across being someone who is a follower. I think we all have leadership capabilities in us. It's just whether or not we want to hone that situation and sacrifice and be selfless in situations where it requires such. I think it's important to have some forms of leaders, and a quarterback, especially in that league, is one of the best places you can look to leadership, but not everyone is going to be that, at least in the greater context of society, and so, or even to the people in that locker room. Sometimes people will come up short on leadership in other places, because leadership often requires courage, and Aaron Rodgers, in the case of being an anti-vaxxer, did not have the courage to say that he was not immunized. He did not want to be a leader on the anti-vax front, which is totally fine. I understand why Aaron Rodgers would not want to be a leader on the anti-vax front. It seems like a very lonely island to sit on if you are a leader on the anti-vax front, by the way, which also, by the way, is is grounded in nonsense. I'm just going to put that out there as well to editorialize a bit. Like, it seems lonely to be out there because being wrong and being on an island sometimes can lead to people vilifying you on the other end when you don't have the echo chamber of people who know that you are right. And sometimes people think that they're right, and that's the way that you convince yourself that you're a leader in a certain situation, but also history's not going to reflect well upon the anti-vaxxers, just as history won't reflect well on the Republicans, history won't reflect well on the racists, the misogynists, the homophobes, the anti-Muslim groups, the white supremacists, all the history's not going to reflect well on those people. And ultimately, history will not reflect well on Aaron Rodgers in this case. And it will not reflect well upon Kyrie Irving, and it will not reflect well upon people willing to stand on that platform. But it must be a lonely feeling to be out there, and I understand why Aaron Rodgers would not want to be the leader of the anti-vax movement. But at that point, it becomes deceptive. It becomes deceptive, or at the least, we feel deceived by Aaron Rodgers. Whether or not you you can respect the idea of this being a private decision for Aaron Rodgers, which I feel that we do have a responsibility for public-facing figures to know their status around this, just as I feel we should probably know the people that we're working with or the people who we go to school with or whatever the situation may be, I feel we do have a right to know their vaccination status for the greater good because that is something that seems reasonable in terms of a sacrifice for greater good which is part of how trust is built, which is part of how leadership comes into play, is trusting leadership. And there is such a lack of leadership in society as a whole 
that Aaron Rodgers kind of becomes a microcosm of this in this one instance. I don't know if Aaron Rodgers is a great leader outside of this. I think we kind of just assume, well, Aaron Rodgers is a great quarterback and the Packers have had lots of success. And because he's a great player at that position, Aaron Rodgers is a leader. I don't know if Aaron Rodgers is a great leader or not. I don't know if Kirk Cousins is a great leader or not. I don't know if Kyler Murray's a great leader or not. I don't know if Justin Herbert is a great leader or not when Justin Herbert never says anything. Extremely introverted. I was reading the story about him where um, after his first loss as a pro, he spent like two hours just staring into the ground and processing it all in the locker room. And Keenan Allen was confused because he's like, Justin, it's one game. We're going to be all right in the grand scheme of things. And I don't know whether Justin Herbert, who's a really introverted, quiet kid, is a leader or not. I, and again, these are just connotations for leaders being loud, vocal, outspoken, strong personality people, which doesn't have anything to do with leadership. It's just the stereotype that we've incorrectly processed for leadership. I'm just saying I don't know if any of these people are good leaders because this is more just I don't know them at all. And so I don't know Aaron Rodgers as a leader, and I don't know if Aaron Rodgers is in a place where he looks up and says, I need to look out for Aaron Rodgers. From this point going forward, I need to look out for Aaron Rodgers. Maybe he's in that place. Maybe he's not. I just don't know in this point. At which point, if it is the other, if it is at its simplest level, the latter, which is, I need to look out for Aaron Rodgers. I do not want to be a Packer anymore. And I would like to move on with the rest of my career because I've been betrayed across a decade by the organization. And I think, by the way, when, when Aaron Rodgers was going through the whole holdout slash everyone talking about where he would go, like I felt he had great reason for wanting to leave. The betrayal of the organization when you go all the way down the line to uh, protecting Mike McCarthy across years, the injuries that he suffered in those final couple years with McCarthy, to hiring LaFleur without consulting him, to not giving him a say in personnel, to uh, the owner of the team, or I think it was uh, Thompson, the the um, president of the team, calling him and saying, don't be, or like, just don't mess it up, basically. He's like, we're hiring Matt LaFleur, don't be... Uh, don't be immature was basically what he was saying. Don't be a baby about it. We're going to hire Matt LaFleur. We're not going to consult you. This is our guy within the organization to the ultimate betrayal. I mean, we could go further to LaFleur's clock management in the conference championship game all the way on down to the ultimate betrayal of drafting Jordan Love. You can go up and down the list of reasons that are, are reasonable causes for Aaron Rodgers to look up and say, I don't want to be with this organization anymore. I think Aaron, I trust Aaron Rodgers has reasons, a reasonable causes for wanting to leave the Green Bay Packers. I'm not going to say, what is he thinking at this point? No, I feel like there are reasonable, re, there are reasonable reasons for why Aaron Rodgers would want to leave the Green Bay Packers. And if that's the case, and he's made up his mind around this situation, and the way you get out of it is by making things ugly, which Aaron Rodgers kind of compromised on making it ugly like Deshaun Watson before all the legal stuff was willing to make it ugly back in like January and February where he was not responding to messages from the Texans and leaking things to the media era Russell Wilson on the other hand folded as soon as he had the chance to make things ugly Aaron Rodgers was somewhere in between Aaron Rodgers may or may not have leaked the Adam Schefter story on draft day 
may or may not have done the Jeopardy thing as leverage against the Green Bay Packers, may have done the uh, the media circus around the match with uh, uh, TNT with Tom Brady and uh, Phil Mickelson, and I forgot who the Bryson, I think, was the other person, may have gone through that media circus and wearing the I'm offended t-shirt, um, may, not going to camp, whatever it might be. Aaron Rodgers may have drawn that out in a slight way of making it slightly uncomfortable. Not ugly enough where they had to move on from him, but just uncomfortable enough. And if that's all going to be the case, does Aaron Rodgers have a responsibility to be a leader for the Green Bay Packers? If his decision to come back, which felt like a little bit of a compromise between himself and the Packers, was as such... Does Aaron Rodgers have a responsibility to that locker room to be a leader? And I think there are no correct answers to that question. I think both sides have equal merit. Is it by virtue of being in that locker room and being that quarterback that you have a responsibility to be selfless, to sacrifice in the good of the team, a team that you don't want to play for? It's a good it's an interesting question that I don't know if it has a true right answer. And regardless of whether it's a right answer or not, that means either regardless of whether the answer is he has a responsibility to be a leader or whether he doesn't have a responsibility to be a leader, the anti-vax and deceiving us about anti-vax, at least us, I don't know if he deceived his teammates or not, but the deception around being an anti-vaxer feels like a breach in leadership. And I'm sorry, it doesn't feel like it is a breach in leadership. Again, with lack of information about what exactly constitutes his um, alternative vaccine or whether or not his teammates knew he didn't have a vaccine and just we didn't know about it, whatever it might be, that is a breach in leadership on Aaron Rodgers' part. So regardless of whether he has a responsibility to be a leader or not, either he does have a responsibility to be a leader and he's broken that trust, or he doesn't have a responsibility to be a leader and thus has chosen to break trust because it's not something that matters to Aaron Rodgers. Aaron Rodgers is in it for Aaron Rodgers at this point. It'll work to the detriment of the Packers in the long run because good leadership really makes the strongest uh, workplaces and the strongest organizations and the strongest friend groups because it builds trust on a basic level. And the most efficient groups are when people can feel relaxed and trust the people that work around them. But does Aaron Rodgers care about the great the, the greater good of the Packers organization? That is a whole nother question. Maybe he did in the past and maybe he doesn't now. We just don't know enough about Aaron Rodgers to accurately answer that question. And I don't think Aaron is going to volunteer that information to us. Maybe if we could truth serum him and ask him whatever questions we wanted, we could get the down to the heart of it. It's just an interesting question of whether or not he has that responsibility or not to the Green Bay Packers. And I don't know exactly what the answer is to that. Aaron Rodgers is so disgruntled with Green Bay Packers that he has told some within the organization that he does not want to return to the team. And so we have a standoff here that nobody knows exactly where it's going. He is not making this about money. He wants out of there and he's telling you there is no amount of money. We want him back in the worst way. I know he knows that. And um, 
you know, we'll, we'll continue to work at it. The situation between the Green Bay Packers and Devontae Adams is not good. As far as this weekend, as far as training camp, we will see. There's been one message consistently coming out of Aaron Rodgers' camp, and, and that's, I don't want to be here. So let's talk about Odell Beckham Jr. Because Odell is gone. He has basically just been said to go home. He showed up to practice today and was told to go home. And that is uh, the end of the Cleveland Browns relationship with Odell Beckham Jr. Although there was an interesting report that Odell plans to play on Sunday for the Cleveland Browns. It does not seem like there is a chance of that happening anymore, but... Uh, we did this podcast back in April, I want to say, and uh, it might not be 100% on par, but it's sometime around then where we talked about Odell Beckham's future uh, with the Cleveland Browns and what it was going to do uh, from this point going forward in terms of how Odell Beckham was going to, his contract was going to last with the Cleveland Browns. It was actually March 9th, March 9th of 2021. We did the podcast on Odell Beckham. And what we concluded at that time was Odell Beckham is going to play out next year with the Cleveland Browns and then he's going to be released. He's going to play out 2021 and then the Browns were going to release him once they had freed up cap space. Because the Cleveland Browns are paying Odell Beckham 17 point or sorry 14.7 million dollars this season they are going to pay him i believe 14.4 next season this according to sport track so they have 14.7 this year 14.4 next year a dead cap hit on odell beckham is 15 million dollars now and 15 million dollars next year that number does not change now cleveland could get rid of odell beckham today and still incur that $15 million dead cap hit. We assume they've already paid out eight games of the contract. I don't know exactly what Odell Beckham's contract status is, like when Odell gets paid. But we assume, you know, we're eight games into the season. There's 17 games, so slightly less than half. Um, Odell Beckham has been probably paid just less than half of that contract. So let's say there's $8 million left on the contract. He's paid... Six million already this year. He's got eight million left for the remainder of the season. So they could cut Odell Beckham and incur the fifteen million dollar dead cap hit, or they could release or they could sit Odell Beckham, pay him the eight million dollars, and save the extra seven million in cap space. And the third option is they negotiate a buyout with Odell Beckham, where he agrees to give back some of the money and he goes and signs with another team. I don't know where they stand in that negotiation right now um, or a waiver or whatever the situation might be, but it looks like for now they are going to choose plan B, which is sit Odell Beckham and save the $7 million in cap space to avoid the dead cap from cutting him and having him potentially go play for another team. Plus, uh, you are, you're losing the money, you're losing the player no matter what, so they've decided that they're going to sit Odell Beckham and save the $7 million. And so, I think that that's probably the best strategy right now. The only way that Odell Beckham can get out of this is by making things ugly. Can Odell Beckham make things ugly enough in Cleveland that the Browns are willing to absorb the $7 million cap hit? And by the way, Cleveland right now is sitting at about 9.8 million in cap space so Cleveland can 
get rid of Odell Beckham and still be okay in terms of like being under the cap. It's not like they have to negotiate a buyout or restructure someone else's contract or whatever it might be. Cleveland is basically saying, do we just, if if we're not going to get anything from Odell Beckham the rest of the year, do we incur the $8 million? Do we take, do we just take our losses with 8 million and nothing or 15 million and nothing? But if we keep the 8 million, we can, we might have to absorb the dead cap hit next year, or we can look to trade Odell Beckham and get out from that contract a bit, but also we might have to absorb some of the money, which is why we said before they will probably just cut Odell Beckham at the end of the season. And I still think that's going to be the case. It'll be really funny if by the time people are listening to this, they did cut him and just uh, absorb the $7 million this year and not hamstring themselves to next season, where they just say we're going to walk away now and not incur the cap hit when they cut him this offseason. But even still, Cleveland is... Cleveland is in a difficult lose-lose position because now Odell Beckham is a sunk cost. And I was listening to Bomani Jones talk about Odell Beckham and saying like, this is the rare trade where everyone's a loser. The Browns are a loser. The Giants are a loser. Odell's a loser. Jabril Peppers, Dexter Lawrence are losers. Uh, everyone gets to be a loser in the, in the Cleveland Browns, New York Giants, Odell Beckham trade. And Odell is at this point a sunk cost to the Cleveland Browns. And so they are basically saying, we're going to kick the can down the road and keep our cap flexibility this year, as opposed to next year where we're not going to have any massive contracts hitting the books. I mean, Odell is still their highest paid player. Jarvis Landry is second. Jack Conklin is third. So it's not like Miles Garrett's contract kicks in or Denzel Ward's soon to be extension kicks in or Baker Mayfield is going to Baker Mayfield. I said that like Joe Tessitore. I love the way he says Baker Mayfield. Uh, So Baker Mayfield's contract is not going to kick in whatever contract they end up signing with him. Chubb's contract will kick in, but I don't think that's like hugely hamstringing the organization at this point. They should theoretically have more cap space because you're not adding a ton of contracts and some of those contracts will come off the books because every year contracts come off the books for NFL teams. You always have free agents at the end of every season. Clowney is going to be one of them. He only signed a one-year deal. So Assuming you will have better cap flexibility for next year, which is not always the case, um, we can actually figure out what the Browns cap situation is going into next year. Currently, the Browns have $17 million in available cap space going into next season. Um, They can move stuff around and restructure contracts, of course, but they will have more flexibility going into next year. And remember, they are going to have the Odell Beckham contract no matter what, and therefore, they will either pay him the $14 million or just absorb the dead cap hit next year. At this point, they would be paying 15 in dead cap plus what they've already paid him. So it'd be like $23 million to walk away from Odell Beckham at this point. So I think they're going to sit him. I think they're going to sit him, which I don't think will sit well with Odell Beckham Jr. If he's just asked to go home for a while because of his albatross of a contract. But I think they are just going to ask Odell Beckham to go home They're going to finish off the contract this year, and they're going to split up the payment. They are going to say, instead of paying all $23 million right now, we're going to pay $8 million this year. We're going to pay $15 million next year because this is officially a sunken contract, and Odell Beckham will never play another snap 
for the Cleveland Browns. At least that's the way it's looking right now. Maybe so there's some reconciliation that seems to be over because Odell Beckham is not returning Kevin Stefanski's phone calls, and Stefanski has basically said Odell is operating as if he's not a part of the team right now. So, looks to be that Odell Beckham has played his last game with the Cleveland Browns. Will Cleveland accept his $23 million of sunken cost all at once by cutting him? Or will they absorb it over two years, $8 million this year and $15 million next year? We will find out in the coming days. I think it's still going to be in the offseason to split it up, but we'll find out, won't we? And uh, since we're talking about the Browns, we might as well play our Dogs of War theme song. So uh, shout out to our boys over there. You should absolutely check out their podcast. We should get the Dogs of War on here at some point. Finally, I wanted to uh, update the Henry Ruggs situation here on the pod, and this probably won't be very long. It won't be the same nuanced, layered conversation that we had yesterday, which you guys really did respond to. Like, this was one of our biggest one-day podcast totals in a while. Maybe that's because the Henry Ruggs news was the story of the day, but you guys did quite respond to the Henry Ruggs story. So, uh, Henry Ruggs, more details came out. He arrived in court. Um, with a neck brace and a wheelchair and his mugshot was plastered around the internet. I was surprised by the the toxic reaction to Henry Ruggs um, and the scapegoating of Henry Ruggs in this situation, which maybe I shouldn't have been. Maybe this is the, the spirit of the internet, which is that anger sells. I know that was the whole point around the Facebook, um, the Facebook uh, Senate hearings was that their Facebook basically trafficked in anger and human emotions, which is that social media brings, I mean, the strongest reactions, the humans react most strongly to angry and Facebook capitalized on those emotions. And so maybe I shouldn't have been surprised that the, the scapegoating of Henry Ruggs seemed to be the way people process this situation. Um, but it was just something that I noticed, which was uh, the most popular posts on NFL memes IG and the most popular posts on NFL hate memes and Canadian Cutler. Shout out to our boy Canadian Cutler, by the way, too. I know he's been going through a lot in the last few months, so wanted to shout out the boy over there. Um, it's the most popular memes were the ones that were, you know, scapegoating Henry Ruggs as this vile, evil person. And it seemed a bit intense for me, but maybe I shouldn't have been surprised by that because I just... I, I didn't think of that as, as someone who's not really a vindictive person. Uh, I did not think to that the, the angry outcrying towards Henry Ruggs, but maybe that's how people internalize tragedy because as we talked about yesterday, and this is what I wanted to bring back into focus here, because what I tried to emphasize on the front end yesterday is that one death is a tragedy and 10,000 to 11,000 deaths every single year, courtesy of data from the past four years of the National Highway Traffic and Safety Administration. Um, you can see we cited our source in the previous podcast if you wanted to um, see the, the full data list from the past uh, five years on uh, deaths related to alcohol and deaths on highways, if you were interested in that data. Actually, I'll repost it in the description to this episode if you're looking for the data on that. So, um, one death is a tragedy, 
10,000 to 11,000 deaths a year is a statistic. We talked about this with COVID as well. COVID hit people the hardest when it directly affected people. Unfortunately, I didn't have anyone in my life who, you know, very close to me who died of COVID-19, really even had COVID-19 for an extended period of time. It didn't hit me the same way that it hit a lot of other people. When we're talking about 70,000 or 700,000 deaths in America or 12 million deaths worldwide, we are looking at a statistic. Um, this is similar to how people internalize things like the Holocaust um, and genocide and war is death becoming a statistic. And we become numb to this because we can't process 700,000 deaths. There's a really good stand-up comedy set that I've seen about this where it's the idea of when you kill 5 million people, we don't know what to do. So we're just like, oh, well, well done. I, 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 we don't know how to internalize this. And so I, I wanted to put that out on the front end, but I'm not sure if I made a strong enough point around this and maybe doing the, the humor around it this time might not have done the job exactly either. But I think I wanted to put on the front end that when we're focusing on the tragedy itself, we can empathize with this situation and feel for the people who are going through real grief and real loss in this situation in Las Vegas. And also put that into perspective as well. And maybe putting it into perspective when we're talking about emotions is right, but not right. And this is something I talk about all the time is that sometimes it's better to be wrong and empathetic than be right and then basically to be right. I don't know what the, the opposite of empathetic would be in this situation, but sometimes it's just better to be wrong than right. Sometimes the wrong thing is the right thing when we're dealing with emotions because emotions and logic are the two halves of our brain. I believe the right side of our brain is emotion, left side of our brain is logical thought. And the reason that like whenever something happens and we're like, I don't, I don't know why, I just feel it. You know, when you talk about your gut feeling, that's because the right side of our brain, which is based around emotion, does not have any parts in there where we connotate language. The, the, the language that we process is in the left side of our brain. That's how we process language and connotate it into thoughts. That's why we can be logical in conversation and articulate our thoughts through logic is because that's the part of our brain that connects to speech is on the logical half of our brain, but not our emotional half of our brain. And so it's hard to talk about emotions and it's hard to connotate what we're feeling because it's just brain chemistry at its most basic level. And so sometimes being right and being logical is not the right circumstance because being logical sometimes bucks against emotions and emotions are feelings, they're perceptions that people would like to articulate but maybe don't and it's not grounded in reality and that's perfectly okay in a lot of situations and so sometimes it's better to be wrong than be right personally I found fascinating the macro level conversation around Henry Ruggs and around the pain of that situation especially for the grieving family and maybe that was not the right context to put it into so I'd like to articulate the tragedy side of it here because in perspective this is a tragedy that exists because we know the person who is a perpetrator. There are 10 to 11,000 deaths every single year in relation to uh, DUIs and situations of those uh, of dr of drunk driving or driving under the influence leading to a vehicular death. 
Um, and we don't know the stories of the 11,000 people. The thing that gets us impassioned about this is when there's a personal connection to it. And I personally don't have that personal connection to it. It's a blind spot of mine. I don't know someone who has died from a DUI incident. I don't know other people or people have not articulated to me that they know someone close to them who was a, a victim of a drunk driving incident. So I don't have that personal connection to it. And so this is where there may be a blind spot in it because I can empathize on a greater level of just showing a basic level of human kindness that I think we lack in a lot of situations, but I personally feel that I do a pretty good job of. And when I don't get there, I, I try my best to put myself in a position to empathize, uh, even if logic pushes back against it. And this is something that I'm unlearning from childhood and unlearning from years of suppressed emotions. And this is something that's a growth on my part. And I'm getting to that point. I, I feel like, not to toot my own horn, but I feel like I'm very good when it comes to empathizing with people relative to the peers around me who show empathy towards other people or just ob observed empathy, I guess I should say. Um, I, I like to think that I do a pretty good job around that. And so where this brings back into that is because I don't have the personal connection this story probably doesn't hit as hard to home as me. And so maybe someone else uh, feels that the pain of seeing a, a, a senseless death at the hands of someone who is driving under the influence brings back a traumatic situation for themselves and their way of processing that is through scapegoating the uh, perpetrator in this situation, which is, of course, Henry Ruggs. And... To, to me, it seems unhealthy and logically it seems unhealthy, but emotionally, maybe that's a way for someone to cope with that situation without, you know, medication or without professional help to try and, and work through these things. Maybe that's the healthiest way someone has come to a conclusion that they should process their emotions. Entirely possible. And if that's the case, then I don't want to be the person who kind of pisses on that as we piss on tradition and piss on people's uh, preconceived notions and tribalism all the time, I don't want to be the person who's tribalistic towards that, or an, or worse, antagonistic towards the, that type of emotional processing. I'm sure people have come to that conclusion all the time. And so what's most interesting to me about the Henry Ruggs situation is that it gives us an opportunity to bring that part to light but also the part I'm fascinated about is how do we make this not a one-day story? Or if we want to not make it a one-day story. Because like DUI is a, is a problem in America as a social problem. It is not of our highest priority in terms of solving the issue in society. We're solving famine. We're solving racism. We are solving uh, a COVID-19 pandemic that's killed uh, over half a million people in America, which... When you do comparison shopping on this, which feels like playing God quite a bit, but when we're talking about 70 to 1 in terms of deaths, it's not of a high priority right now. It's not that DUI is not a high priority to some. It's not a high priority on a societal level. And so we don't really act on this, hence the fact that the data that we saw from the National Highway Traffic and Safety Administration says that between 2017 and 2019, the data is super consistent. You have between uh, 37,000 to 38,000 deaths, or sorry, 36,000 to 38,000 deaths among, uh, among just general uh, highway traffic deaths. 
and 27 to 28% of those are related to alcohol, and the deaths related to alcohol are between 10 and 11,000 every single year, every for the last five years. And again, if you want to see the data, it's in the link of the description to today's episode. Every single year, that data is consistent, which means that we are not improving or uh, having the problem get worse across the past uh, five years, which means that we're not doing anything to address the situation on a societal level. Because as we saw with the COVID-19 pandemic as the best example, when we really put and invest time, effort, and resources into a cause, we as a society can create real legitimate change. And we and there are factors that will prevent it from being perfect, but you can improve the situation to be better off down the road so that maybe, as we articulated at the end yesterday, maybe a few people here and there won't die as a result of a, a drunk driving related incident. But we haven't done that because it's not of a high priority to our society right now. And this is a larger scale conversation that I wanted to have while also taking into account the empathy of that situation because I don't have a personal connection to it. I felt I did a good job articulating the difference between blind spots and blind spots of myself and the difference between a tragedy and a statistic when we're talking about grander societal issues and playing God even a little bit. But I didn't want to minimize the pain of others as well. And so as I was walking away, I felt maybe we should bring this up again and state the obvious that the Henry Ruggs situation is indeed a tragedy. And there is real pain and real loss in this situation. And I'm sure there are people around the internet who are processing things, or really around America, it doesn't just have to be on the internet, that are processing this situation differently because of their personal connections and personal stories. And those feelings are absolutely legitimate. That is the part I wanted to reemphasize on the front end that maybe we didn't do a good enough job of yesterday. It's just something that I wanted to bring back into focus as we again, have a macro level conversation about the Henry Ruggs story. So with that being said, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for stopping into the Take It Easy podcast. We will have more episodes coming up here in the next week or so. Uh, This has been a really eventful week, lots of content. Sometimes I'll go in and not know exactly what the content is going to be. This week was very much not one of those weeks. We have very much found the content to pour out here on the podcast. And so uh, I thank you for stopping in here today. And as always, take it easy. We'll talk to you again tomorrow.